This was more than just a listening experience. These virtual labs take courses from being a listening experience with maybe some pencil P sets to, you know, your hands are active. So, right. you know, hands on, brain on, right? And when people's brains turn on, they remember it. <laughs> Ever wonder how we go from the building blocks of atoms to creating things like Amazon Cloud? And how educators introduce the architecture of digital systems to future engineers? So here I was, I was riding on the Hong Kong subway, mm -hmm. and some young adult comes up to me and says, I took your MIT X course, and I'm sort of going, wow, I mean, this is, you know. That's incredible. Is Welcome to Chalk Radio, a podcast about inspired teaching at MIT. I'm your host, Sarah Hansen from MIT OpenCourseWare. Today on the podcast, we're diving into the world of 6004, Computation Structures. This is an MIT course designed to teach undergraduate students how digital systems are engineered. Some students come to the class with prior experience in programming and some understanding of how computers are structured, but others come knowing little more than how to use a browser. Through the iterative teaching practices of a team of instructors, this course manages to engage all of these students in learning this cutting-edge information. Today I'm speaking with one of the key educators in this course, Senior Lecturer Emeritus Christopher Terman. We'll run through what it takes to connect and educate an audience whose experience might vary from complete novice to virtual professional. In our conversation, Terman shares his insights on the evolution of this course over the last 20 years and how its current design is so effective at engaging its broad student base. We'll start off with Terman's own story of getting engaged with computation structures. So how did you become interested in computation structures? Well, in the early 70s, I was a college student trying to earn my way through college. And so I was the computer operator on the third shift for the campus computer. That was in the era in which you could only afford one. And since watching the blinking lights was boring, I pulled out the schematics for the computer I was uh, running for the, for the university, and I started trying to figure out how the computer worked. And ever since then, it's been sort of a, a lifelong interest in, in figuring out how do they actually put together these components to make a machine that can do computation. What kind of background experiences do the students bring related to computation It's all over the map. Okay. It's all over the map. So some of them will uh, come having, you know, programmed computers for a long time and maybe even know a little bit about how the computers are structured on the insides. Other people have not done beans. And so they come with interest but no background at all. So how do you structure a course to meet the needs of people with diverse backgrounds like that? Right. So... To handle really diverse backgrounds, you have to have a huge range of materials. So you need something that somebody who just, I need to start at the beginning. You, you need a beginning for them to start at. And for somebody who's sort of, you know, past the first half of your material, you need a second half, which will engage their interests. So I create a huge, I think of it as a buffet. There's lots of dishes, uh, and you can start at the beginning of the buffet and, and sort of, you know, pick it up from scratch. Or you can say, all right, I'm going to skip the first couple courses, and I'm, I'm ready to dive in, you know, sort of in the middle of the conversation somewhere. So the, I think the real key is having a huge selection of materials to draw from. And that's, I think, one of the hallmarks of, of 6004 has been that, you know, we have every possible way of learning the materials. So not only for different backgrounds, but for different learning styles. 
there's sort of an emerging best practice about how how to explain material to people for the first time. So, you know, you want to do a short bites, sound bites, video bites, you know, those short segments of, of learning where you introduce a single skill or a single concept. And then you take a moment to actually, you know, give them some check yourself questions. So the idea is, well, you in theory, you just listened to this or watched it. I'm going to ask you some simple questions, not puzzlers. They're just, if you understood what I just told you on the video, then you can answer them. And I think the students appreciate it. Everything's more, more bite-sized. You know, we both know it's, you can imagine pushing play on a 50-minute video and, you know, long about minute, well, I'm going to say 37, but I, long about minute six, you're going to be, right. oh, you know, <laughs> I, maybe I should check my email while I'm listening to this. So right. it's, it's, you know, keeping things short and sweet, plus it's asynchronous. In other words, they, they get to choose their time and place. This must be just such an exciting time for you as someone who's really interested in the scholarship of teaching and learning and then the emergence of these digital tools to enable those, that learning through best practices. I can, can feel your enthusiasm for kind of the era that we're in. Yeah. Well, you know, those of us who teach at the university level, you know, we, we get handed a piece of chalk and be told to teach, you know, unlike the teachers for your kids in elementary school who've actually gone through a program teaches them how to teach. We're right. just said, here, teach. And so it's all anecdotal. It's all trying to remember how people taught you. Um, finally, we have, you know, the online courses are providing a real educational laboratory. We're able to try out different techniques. We're able to, you know, make fairly accurate assessments of how well did that just work, um, you know, whether it was an exercise or a video segment or a design problem. And so... We can actually, you know, do A-B tests with the, in the same cadre. So, you know, it's, it's pretty neat having a lab. I mean, as a scientist and engineer, you can build a hypothesis, test it, you know, through a bunch of experiments. We can really do the experiments with the MITx platform. And so that's been great. Let's talk about learning in the classroom and teaching large lecture classes. What strategies do you have for keeping students engaged? Well, that's interesting. Because we have so many different materials, really the only students who come to lecture are the ones who, are, you know, for whom lecture is how they learn. And I, I was such a student. I see. So the people who are there are not uh, a draft army. They're right. all volunteers. Self-selected, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, they're prepared to be somewhat engaged by a I vocal see. presentation. So I have a well-developed uh, set of, of materials that I present in class that have okay. sort of been debugged for having not too much or too little, okay. uh, a progression that most people can follow. Mm. Um, it's a very relaxed sort of experience. Mm. You know, I tell jokes, I tell stories from my career. Okay. And it's interesting to me how, you know, when the students are making comments at the end of the semester and the evaluations, yes. many of them say, oh, I really like the story. So it's, you know, you, you you know, after boring you with technical details, it's fun to say. And then when I tried to use that, you know, this following thing happened. Um, right. And all of a sudden, they're sort of perking up saying, oh, right. you know. And I, I think it helps them remember the related content, It does. Too. It does. When you think about what you remember from lectures, um, it's almost never a technical nugget. It's you know, a joke they told or an right. accident that happened or a mistake that was made. And so it's, right. it's there's this concept called fluency. Mm-hmm. 
which is basically how smoothly things are going and uh. and and everybody's nodding, but no, you know, so your mind is starting to drift because it's all. So it's actually good to try to put a little disfluency into your lecture to, uh. to actually have a you know you stop and you tell a joke or you right. you make a mistake or you drop the chalk and say darn and you look at the floor. <laughs> right. And, or um, and here's what I like to do is you walk out from behind the lecture table uh. or lectern and you approach the audience right. and you can see them sort of like wait. He's escaped. You know, how did it, <laughs> and so it, just anything that sort of switches up, you know, the sort of I'm just going along with the flow here. So, you know, making, you know, little flows that have things that change make a lot of difference in keeping people sort of engaged. I was curious about the teaching team behind a course like this. So I asked Chris to tell me a little bit about the team of people that make a course like this work. We have a little cadre of, of people who are instructors. Um, I've been sort of part of that cadre every semester for a very long time. But we have other you know, people who come in from the outside. Uh, in recent years, the department has added a lecture, you know, lecturer resources. So okay. uh, there's another lecturer associated with it. And then faculty come in. So it's, okay. And you know, they provide a little depth to the gene pool. Sure. But then we have graduate TAs who teach recitations, okay. and we have uh, student undergraduate TAs, and then lab assistants. So they're sort of we have this whole hierarchy. They've uh-huh. all taken the course. They've all loved it. So you know, sort of like me, there's an enthusiasm right. that sort of bubbles out. It's and contagious. So that, yeah. <laughs> um, and the students actually, you know, I, I sort of listed things sort of. Well, I was going to say top down. I'm not sure mm. lecturers are at the top, but um, or <laughs> right. instructors are at the top. But but the students actually prefer the other thing, which is they mm. actually, you know, asking an LA is not very intimidating. As right. the students, maybe they just took it last semester, sure. and so they have fresh in their minds what it is they needed to do in order to get whatever it is they're trying to get. And then you sort of work up the hierarchy to you know, get an answer of people below. And that way you're only asking questions of the more intimidating people when you're pretty sure that no one else has the answers. Right. What's the role of the online fora in the course for helping students feel comfortable asking questions? And how do you monitor it? How do you run it productively? This is something that educators sometimes struggle with to me it's a it's a wonderful asset for the first time i'm able to make a thoughtful answer to a question and have 180 people look at the answer Mm -hmm. instead of one and then the next person has the same question you say well i just spent 10 minutes you know (laughs) and i can you know with a large class you can't spend 10 minutes for each of them you know 300 people so it's a great place to ask questions and so many of the questions are look i read the material and i'm still not getting it i need an example so the students, I try to make students feel very comfortable asking. It's never, there's nothing, no cost. They can ask anonymously, so that removes some of the barrier. I think fall 2017, we had about 2,500 um, contributions to wow. the forum. Um, the average response time is about 20 minutes. Hmm. Um, and so a lot of us who are involved <laughs> in the course sort of have a, we put the, the notification of mm. postings on real time. And so we get an email right away. And I think the fast response time really reduces the frustration level of the students. Uh, There's nothing like being stuck on something. Right. And saying, I, I wish I could ask somebody. Well, for the first time, you can say, wait, I can ask and I can get an answer. And the students really, really appreciate that. Mm. Um, so it. it the forum has really, I think, changed students' 
level of frustration when they get stuck. They, you know, it's, being stuck is just a, a, a 10-minute process, not a two-day process. Right. Let's talk for a minute about the lab experiences um, in the course. So students get hands-on experience doing digital design. Yes. Um, could you talk about a few of those experiences and also does that take place here where we are right now? Well, you can do it anywhere. It's browser-based. So okay. there's no software to download. It's just, it's just on the web. You go. Um, you know, 20 years ago, I gave you software to download on your computer to do this stuff. Uh, what a you know, landmine that was. Everybody's environment was a little different. Oh, you don't have the latest <laughs> version of that library? Well, you can't run this. But if you update your library, you can't run that. And it was, it was really a nightmare. So, you know, packaging up these lab experiences in a way that they can be used by people around the world. You know, I, so here I was, I was riding on the Hong Kong subway mm -hmm. and some young adult comes up to me and says, I took your MIT X course <laughs> really? and I really love doing the circuit stuff and I didn't have to download anything. And I'm sort of going, wow. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to be stopped by people. Um, right. And, you know, they start talking about, how this was more than just a listening experience. So these virtual labs are actually take courses from being a listening experience with maybe some pencil P sets to, you know, your hands are active. So, you know, hands-on, brain-on, right? And what people brains turn on is amazing what they, you know, they, they remember it. <laughs> right. One of the distinguishing and most interesting parts of this course is that the learning is greatly enhanced by deductive reasoning. In fact, the ability to apply prior knowledge to solve a problem in front of you is one of the main skills students come away with from this class. A lot of students aren't very good at, at taking the information they do know and using it to deduce the next thing to try or the next thing to test and sort of narrow down what the problem is. So it's something you have to learn how to do is to be organized about taking something that isn't working or complicated things. So parts of it are working, but something isn't. And trying to work back from both ends to somewhere in the middle, it doesn't work. And so that's a skill that you have to practice for a while. Right. And so I, you know, I, we try to help with that skill. It's, it's sort of neat to watch them make the transition from coming in as sort of answer focused to leaving sort of like, uh, okay, you can ask me anything because I actually know how to do things. I mean, from scratch, I can not only recognize the right answer when I see it, right. I can actually make right answers. Right. That's a very, that people feel empowered when they can do that. We'll close out this episode with a moment from the interview that really struck me because it captured how Chris strives to humanize the learning experience in 6004, how he understands that students are whole people who bring their lives into classroom spaces. Doctors have this saying, you know, treat the patient, not just the disease. And so when students are struggling with material, I find, you know, it's often the case that that there's issues that are not just, you know, what's the technical concept or skill that we're talking about. And so I've learned over the years to make myself as best I can accessible to students who need to talk about their life as, as a student, uh, their life as a person here at MIT. Um, and, you know, everybody comes with a bit of imposter syndrome. So you need to, you know, help students deal with that a little bit. So there's a lot of issues that aren't 
on the syllabus in 6004 that affect how they do in 6004. And I've learned that it's good for me to invest my time in helping them, you know, think about, talk through their larger issues. I'm, I'm not very good at writing prescriptions, but you can sort of listen and you can try to offer a bit of perspective. I think what's interesting is that over time, you begin to appreciate, if you're gonna put effort into something, it might as well be the best you can do. It doesn't cost you any more to be better. Um, and it's sort of interesting to me how many people say, oh, I'll, you know, I'll go give that lecture, but I won't really care. And you sort of go, no, no. You know, that's that's not the right approach. You mean, you should actually say, look, if I'm going to spend 40% of my time each semester teaching students, wouldn't it make sense to figure out how best to do it? So right. I, I think everybody comes to that. I, you know, the more you're here teaching, the more you realize that you might as well teach well. Why the hell not? If you're interested in learning more about computation structures, you can find the course materials on our website at ocw.mit.edu. And if you're an educator, check out our educator portal at ocw.mit.edu educator. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing and rating our show. Until next time, I'm Sarah Hansen from MIT OpenCourseWare.